If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 2, and we'll be reading in verses 1 through 11. If we haven't met before, my name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we've been preaching through, started a new sermon series in the Gospel of John here at the beginning of Advent. And uh, we are in one of my favorite you know, stories of the Gospel of John, and probably the same for you. John 2 verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Just to give you an idea of where we're located, Cana is, our best guess is that Cana is located about nine miles to the north of Nazareth. And historians, they estimate that in the first century, Nazareth had a max population of about 500 people. Cana then would have been much, much smaller. So we're talking about a very small village, extremely small. Um, and they have a wedding. And, and we've talked about this also before, but a, a Jewish wedding feast was a very big deal. Uh, they would last as long as seven days. They would include, you know, food, music, dance, celebration. Um, seven days where the entire village shuts down. You know, everybody parties. And when you think about it, there's really nothing in our, in our culture that, that begins to even approximate that, that type of cultural experience. Imagine what that would do to the social cohesion of a community. 160 hours of food and wine and festivity, and you're not having to worry about, you know, going back to work the next day. It, it, I mean, really, it's an unparalleled kind of um, way of doing life, isn't it? You know, every culture Every society enculturates its values, which translates into kind of a liturgy of life, right? And, you know, we've um, um, liturgized certain things in American culture, and they liturgize some things that are very different in their culture. Yeah, and so it just struck me as like, what would that do to a community if you had multiple seven-day feasts uh, throughout the year? But a a tragedy has occurred here, verse 3. The wine is gone. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus replied, dear woman, is that what it says? Yeah, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now, I'm reading from the old NIV. That's a mistranslation, actually, because it's not dear woman. The word there in Greek is simply woman. Woman the, the literal reading of it is like, what to you is to me? Or what is this to me? Um, what, what do I have to do? What does this have to do with me? Woman, and that's definitely not the customary way that you would address your mom in the first century. Uh, just like today, you know, woman. Um, it wasn't considered to be rude, but it was certainly distancing. And so what's going on here? Jesus is distancing himself from Mary. Their relationship is about to profoundly change. We know that at this point in his life, Joseph, husband and father, has died. He's no longer around. And so undoubtedly, Mary had learned to rely upon the eldest son of the family to take care of things. I mean, she would come to him with needs just like this. Jesus, do this, help with this. Please help with this. But that whole mother-son relationship is completely changing at this point as he engages in, as he, you know, heads out into the stage of ministry. And therefore, it's no longer mom-son. It's, you know, Lord-disciple. 
Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He says that in verse, the end of verse 4. My hour has not yet come. Now, thus, you know, at this point in the Gospel of John, we have yet to hear anything about Jesus' hour. So if you're reading it for the very first time, you'd be like, what, what, what is he talking about there? It's intended to create some dramatic tension. What is this hour? Now, we know that the hour turns out to be his hour of exaltation on the cross. And so what Jesus is saying enigmatically in verse 4 is, Mary, what you don't realize is that by asking me to fix this situation, you're inadvertently setting to course, you know, all of the events that are ultimately going to lead to that hour. You're, you're putting the motions and the gears in place for my hour on the cross. Now, if Mary knew that she was doing that by asking him to fix the situation, she probably wouldn't have asked him at all. But, but um, verse 5, it's an interesting interplay between Mary and Jesus because she doesn't interpret this enig- enig- uh, enigmatic response of his to be a denial of the request. Instead, she says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Like, see that guy over there, do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some, of, some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Shock. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, you know, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had t- too much to drink. But... You have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you have to keep in mind, even though running out of wine is not a life and death situation, it it kind of was. (laughs) It kind of was. You know, wine, in their day, wine is what made a feast a feast. And you know, wine is what made a wedding a wedding. The, um, it turns out that the groom and the groom's family were the ones that were responsible for providing for the wine over that seven days, the food and the wine. And uh, curi- just a curiosity of history, it turns out that there's some evidence that a, a husband or a groom could be sued by the father-in-law if he failed to provide adequately for that wedding feast. And the reasoning, reason being that if you can't provide wine for seven days, then you must have misled us about your ability to take care of our daughter. And so, yeah, they, you could be sued for running out of wine. At a minimum, at this moment in John's gospel, at a minimum is a moment of great embarrassment. And Jesus is rescuing this couple from public shame on their wedding day. But he is doing something much more than that, isn't he? He's giving us a sign. That's what John says, verse 11. We talked about it in the, in the first sermon in, uh, as we started out in the Gospel of John, that the first half of this Gospel is referred to as the book of signs. 
There are seven miraculous activities, actions that Jesus does, which are not raw, naked displays of power, hocus pocus to show that I'm divine, but they are signs. They are pointing something uh, out about Jesus and what, what Jesus, who he is and what he does. Uh, and, and, and this is the first sign. He's not feeding the poor. He's not healing the sick. He's keeping a party going. He's keeping a party going. Now, what does that tell us about him? Have you ever been to one of the local wineries in town, walked in and you saw the barrels that they use to, to age the wine for it to fermentation process? Um, you, you know what I'm talking about? So those barrels, does anybody have an idea of how much wine those hold in them? It's 60 gallons. Well, what did Jesus do here? He just created three barrels. 100 and up to 180 gallons of wine. I mean, you think about it. If I were, any idea how many bottles that is? It's three barrels. It's 180 gallons. It's 900 bottles. I mean, if we were to take just two bottles of high-end wine and I were to, you know, pour them into a decanter up here on the pulpit and um, imagine doing that 450 more times. You know, 900 bottles of wine was more than the town of Cana, the village of Cana, could drink an entire year. 900 bottles of wine was more than the entire village of Cana was worth. 900 bottles of wine, if we conservatively estimate it at $30 a bottle, is $27,000. It's just like, it's, it's a wow moment. And if we had... 900 bottles of wine open at the front of this gymnasium. Uh, imagine, imagine what that would mean. It would, the smell of it all. It would, it would smell unbelievable. Um, it, would, it would look so inviting. It would be... So the, the uh, servants know where this wine came from. Um, they draw it out. They take it to the master of the banquet... The master of the banquet was basically the hired MC of the party. If you're throwing a really big party and you need somebody, you need somebody there who's going to keep things going, you know, keep it alive. Let's do this and let's eat this and all of that. That's the master of the banquet. Well, you know, the master of the banquet takes this stuff and he says, he turns to the groom, notice that, turns to the groom and says, like, dude, you crushed it. Because <laughs> normally the way these things work is, you get people, they, they serve the best wine to begin, and then once your palate is glazed over and everybody maybe has had a little too much to drink, uh, you're no longer able to distinguish between the good stuff and the cheap stuff. And so everybody serves the cheap stuff on days three, four, and five, but you, and the words that are supposed to be um, so meaningful there, you saved the best till now. And what does that tell us about Jesus? The other thing of significance here is that the jars that held the wine were, we read it, they were jars of um, purification. In the first century, when you went into a major feast, uh, well, they didn't have soap, but you, know, you were concerned, even not so much about personal hygiene as you were ceremonial cleanliness. 
in order to sit down at table with your fellow Jews, you would first need to take a bottle of water and pour it over your hands. And putting it over the hands means that we are together ceremonially ceremonially clean. It was, be clean. Don't, Don't be like the dirty Gentiles. Be clean, wash. And as you may know, I mean, all of the old covenant, it was constantly, you were washing everything. Um, because there, you were constantly getting dirty. The idea being that, that sin is always contaminating everything, and so we have to constantly be washing. So picture the experience of a, a wedding guest who walks in, into the wedding late. And they go, they take one of these jars, they're intending to wash their hands with the water, and all of a sudden they realize, this isn't water, this is wine. Again, they smell it. They see it. This is a sign. What is it signifying? What do you think it's signifying? Well, here's what I think it's signifying. Moses brought water from a rock. Remember that? Moses brought water from a stone. Jesus brings wine from a stone. Jesus brings Wine, the best wine. The, the days of ceremonial laws, they are over. The, the new wine is better than old ceremonial purifications. And, and the quality of the wine and the abundance of the wine. It's like, I'm not going to give you an inexpensive wine. Oh no, I'm going to set up this wedding, this couple with the greatest wedding present ever. And I'm going to make more wine this entire village can drink and I'm going to make it the best stuff you've ever tasted before because I'm here. I'm the Lord of the feast. I'm the bringer of festival joy. I'm the fulfiller of all that the prophets have written. Yeah, so that's what I think. That's kind of all of, of what's going on here. If I can, I guess, unpack that a little bit more. There are two passages in the Old Testament that are particularly helpful in describing this. The first is found, if you're taking notes, Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, Jacob, the forefather of Israel, um, he is blessing his 12 sons, you know, the 12 tribes, and he comes to the son Judah and prophesies that from Judah will come a great king, a messianic king. And here's what he says in Genesis 49, verse 11. This is the prophecy that Judah will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, what does it mean that Judah will tether his his colt, his donkey, to a vine? What do you think that means? Well, it's a picture of abundance. It's a picture, of, we're not living in drought and in desert. No, the, the, the age that is to come, the messianic age that is promised. I mean, there's going to be so much wine. There are going to be so many grapes and grapevines. You can tie your colt to that as though it was a hitching post. Uh, when you go to wash your clothes, you won't use water and soap suds. You'll be able to wash your clothes in Merlot, you know. So that is the abundance of, of the time when the king of Judah finally comes. It's a really cool picture, isn't it? The second passage of note is from the prophet Amos, chapter 9, 
where he says, listen to Amos, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the planter will be overtaken by the one who is treading grapes, i.e. in a wine press. He goes on, New wine will drip from the mountains and flow all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. As one author puts it this way, um, all of the prophets testify to this. Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, they all link the Messianic age with an abundance of wine, as do several Jewish works that were popular in the first century. The Messianic age is the time when God will put an end to all human suffering, where death will be done away with, where human sin will be eradicated, and there will be such an abundance of laughter and joy like a great bottle of wine that everyone is enjoying in perfect moderation. (laughs) When all things are made new, what will it taste like? What will it feel like? It'll feel like this. It'll feel like this. And he goes on. Here's the key. The gallons and gallons of the very best wine which Jesus created the wedding feast was an image of that world, of that indescribably wonderful world that he will create for us by his life, his death, and resurrection. It is a a glimpse. It is a taste of the glorious joy of that world. You know what I'm talking about? Um, okay, if you're at, the, at a table with a group of friends, and all, the, all these friends need to be over at the age 21, <laughs> but you're sitting there, and everybody is having a glass, and everybody is, is enjoying a glass, but they're, they're not drinking too much. Nobody's drinking too much. It's just, it's just right. And you're sitting there with your best friends. Um, wh- what happens then? I mean, everybody laughs. Everybody's telling stories. Everybody, you know, in those moments, it, it is almost, I've used this analogy before, it's almost like we are a steer in a rodeo, um, and we're all tied up. We ha- we're, we're, we're tied up. We have all of these, these laughs inside of us, these stories inside of us, these jokes inside of us, but this world is so hard. And it's so painful that we're like a, a steer that's just been, he's got his legs tied. And yet when you're at that perfect moment, enjoying a, a bottle with friends, uh, a, around a great meal, it's like, boom, um, the, the, it's untied. And all of those things kind of bubble to the surface. And you can't help but laugh. Can you? You just cannot help but absolutely laugh and smile and it's the best. It's the best. Um, yeah, and I, I think that is what, what, is, what they're trying to get into um, our minds when they picture the Messianic age in this way. <clears throat> now, I feel I, I do have to make the, the point, this is it's not a license to get drunk, right? It, it's, it's not a license to get drunk. This isn't, um, you know, obviously we all have different families of origin. And in some of our families of origin, alcoholism was a very 
big deal, very painful deal. Um, this is not a license to, to drink whenever. We have to, um, as Christians, use our liberty wisely. But um, it's because we have such a tortured relationship with wine that, you know, a number of commentators, they get to John chapter 2, and you know what they say that Jesus created? They, they say he created unfermented wine. <laughs> like, the miracle is the best grape juice imaginable. That, you know, it's because they can't imagine. They can't imagine that Jesus would, would make top shelf stuff in a world, in a place where people may already ha- have had too much to drink. And I mean, so we get these tortured interpretations of the passage. And uh, I mean, frankly, it's just hogwash. That's not what it's saying. He, um, and for, you know, I, yes, it's not a, a license to get drunk. It's not a license for, for some of us. We should never touch it for the rest of our lives because of our history or our family of origin. But, but it is a picture of the Messianic age. It's one image of that. And I know that some of you, um, maybe it's not an image that really resonates with you because you, you don't like wine. <laughs> I mean, some of you, you drink wine and it makes you sick or it makes you tired or, or you, you just don't drink at all. Um, and so I'll, for you, let me ask you this question. What are those moments that you have had where you glimpse the age to come? Where that future world, you taste it in the present. What are those, what are those moments for you where the 180 gallons were sipped and enjoyed? Um, maybe it was a backpacking trip into the Sawtooths with some of your friends. And you unrolled your sleeping bag on the ground and you stared into the brightest night sky you'd ever seen and you ended up having the most honest and revealing conversation that you've ever had in your entire life. Maybe it was falling head over heels madly in love with the, the, the girl of your life and you go out to a concert that evening and the music of that concert was just utterly and completely enchanting. Uh, maybe it was a moment in Christian worship when your voices were united with the, the voices of thousands of other Christians and it felt like you were just snatched up into the third heaven, into the presence of Jesus. Maybe, maybe it was around the Lord's table, but wh- what were those moments where you have tasted, where you have tasted the, the, the new wine? Whatever that moment was, I'd, I'd highly recommend that you share that, you tell that moment to another person. You share that moment with them. Because that is the world we are headed to. Um, We must wait for that world. Of course we must wait for that world. But that is the world the Lord is bringing to us when he comes again. And he says later in his gospel, in this gospel, that I will go to prepare a place for you so that where I am you will be with me. Um, I go to prepare that world for you. And And it makes all the difference in this life if you know that that is the world you're headed to. It makes all the difference in the world to know that that is the world you're, you're headed to. And uh, we must learn how to draw on our knowledge of that future in order to deal with our, presence, uh, our present um, pains and trials uh, today. Maybe you've heard the story of Florence Chadwick before. She was the first woman to uh, swim the English Channel. And in 1952, 
She decided she wanted to be the first woman to swim from Catalina Island to the uh, coast of uh, Southern California. No woman had ever done that before in 52. She set off uh, that morning. It was very foggy, unsurprisingly, when she started her swim, and she couldn't see very far. Well, after she had swung swum, uh, for a mere 15 hours in the water, <laughs> she looked up to her mother who was in a boat beside her and she said, Mama, I can't make it. I can't go any further. And her mother uh, turned to her and encouraged her to keep going. She swam another 55 minutes and she gave up and got into the boat. Then, like uh, mere seconds later, she realized that she was a half a mile from the coast of California. And when later she was asked why she quit, Chadwick said, it was because I couldn't see anything. Like, if I could have just seen the coastline, I know that I would have made it. And it makes all the difference in the world to be able to see that future. Isn't that what Jesus is in part you know, showing us here? Now, I had heard that story of Chadwick. It's actually a Maybe you've heard it because it's a common uh, preacher sermon illustration. But what I, what I didn't know is there's a second part to the story. So about two months later, she got back into the water to try again to swim from Catalina Island to California. And in, as you can guess, this time she made it. And she made it in, um, with that 26 miles, she made it in a world record time for that distance. She broke the, the women's world record, and she broke the men's world record. <laughs> and she uh, broke the woman's real world record by two and a half hours. And yet when she got in the water, it was even foggier the second time than the first. She could not see anything. And when reporters asked her afterwards about the experience, she said, Quote, I was ready this time, and it's real simple. I kept a picture in my mind of the shoreline. Even though I couldn't see it with my eyes, it was ever before me. I never lost sight of the California shoreline, and so I felt like I was always closing in on it. So we could call this the uh, 180-gallon challenge. (laughs) Take the 180-gallon challenge. You know, a lot of people, uh, so many people think Christianity is stay out of trouble, keep your nose clean, just say no, suck it up. If you want to be saved from hell, it's a tough job, but but that's the way way to do it. And I hope you realize, um, if if that's your vision of Christianity, Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet at you in this passage. I mean, it is the 180-gallon challenge. And we could even interpret this passage allegorically. Because um, some of us, I mean, we're being honest. We, get, we came here today, and we are out of wine. We are out of energy. We are out of joy. We are, we are allegorically, we are out. We are exhausted. Like, if you, if you don't like your life, if you're sick of your life, there's good news because he's, he's offering you a new one if you're out. That's the point. If you are out, I have the good stuff. <laughs> and this isn't white Zinfandel that he's offering. He says, if you're out, if you are completely out, if you are on the edge of shame, 
then this is Christianity. This is the real thing. Um, He's the bringer of new wine. Let me conclude with a simple question. And, and I went to a wedding on Friday. Those of you who know the Bogans, longtime family in our church, wonderful family, Dustin got married on Friday. And yeah, we were there for the wedding. I'll ask you the question What is the one thing everybody who goes to a wedding uh, thinks about when they're there? What's the one thing you think about when you go to a wedding? Everybody thinks about when they go to a wedding. They think about, we think about our own wedding, don't we? Either the wedding that we've had in the past or the wedding that we are hoping will come uh, one day. Invariably, every guest at a wedding is compelled to think of that as they're watching the bride and groom go through theirs. And I know that I'm speculating here, but I think it's a fair, fairly safe bet that Jesus was indeed thinking about his wedding at this wedding. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is arguing with some teachers of the law who are criticizing his disciples and suggesting that they're not pious enough because they don't fast like all the other, you know, super pious Jews. They're always eating and drinking. And uh, they say, why why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus replied, you may remember it, why should the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is still with them? It's one of those places that you're reading through quickly and it doesn't, you just go right past it. You don't, you should be shocked when he says that because he's calling himself the bridegroom of Israel. I'm the groom. And yes, Jesus absolutely has a wedding day. And yes, the Bible is absolutely a wedding book. It starts with a wedding in Genesis 2. It ends with a wedding in Revelation 19. Jesus Christ is going to have a wedding day. Uh, That is how history ends according to the Bible. And on that day, all of us who love him, all of us who have only seen the groom in this life by faith, on that day we will see him by sight. And we will fall into his arms. We will fall into his arms as it were. The long-awaited union will occur and it will be the feast to end all feasts and it will go on forever and there will be plenty of wine in it. There will be so much. It'll be the joy that ends all joys and it will go on forever. That's the future. And you, and you think the last point or last idea, John is writing to largely a group of people who are not Jews. They are Gentiles. When they thought of wine, what what came to mind for them? Well, I mean, you have the Roman god Bacchus, right? And then the Greek god Dionysius. You think of, oh, the myths and the stories of the wild Dionysian parties in the forest where there are wood wood nymphs and wine running everywhere, but there's, you know, wild debauchery and orgies and it's it's all crazy and it's, it's kind of, It's kind of sick. In this whole story, Jesus is saying, you know what, that's the devil's caricature. That's the parody. That's kid's play, child's play compared to what I'm about to bring. I'm about to bring a true wedding feast. But first his hour must come. First the blood must flow. The wine, the blood must flow down from the cross to wash his bride and get her ready for her wedding day. Amen.